Hello and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode of my podcast. Later, we'll talk to former Major League Baseballer turned educator and ESPN analyst Doug Glanville about the decision to move the All-Star game out of Atlanta in response to Georgia's voter suppression laws. But first, coronavirus vaccines and variants. We should start by saying that there is no doubt that the amazing speed of the development and deployment of COVID-19 vaccines have kept many people safe all around the world, especially in the U.S. and the U.K. Yet, several recent events have come together to make the public nervous about more than one vaccine. First, there's Johnson & Johnson, a contract manufacturer in Baltimore that had been making both Johnson & Johnson as well as the AstraZeneca vaccines mixed up ingredients from both. The result? 15 million vaccines ruined. That's 15 million. Then came word that the Trump and Biden administrations both were warned about problems at that particular plant. Very, very strange that they would know about it and yet ignore it. And apparently, according to published reports I've seen, the problem with that plant was that they didn't have enough qualified people at critical points in the process of putting these vaccines together. And I'm not talking about Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca. I'm talking about the fact that the uh, vaccines separately were not being overseen by people with the necessary experience. Now, across the pond, problems have arisen with the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. Seems that in a small number of cases, people had blood clots not long after receiving their injections. While it's true the number of problems are small relative to the number of people who've actually received the vaccine, the UK and some countries in Europe have begun limiting the age of people receiving the jab, as they call it in the UK, and recommending other vaccines in its place. Now, you take these two things and put them together and what is the net result? It gives more and more ammunition to vaccine skeptics and to anti-vaxxers. In the States, even as more people are vaccinated, the easing of restrictions appears to have increased the number of infections, particularly in the Midwest. I have said this before and I'm going to say it again. There is nothing wrong with being skeptical about something that you're putting into your body. To some extent, it ought to be expected. The problem is these global problems with the vaccine end up enabling the outliers, not just the skeptics, but the outliers. The ones who say the virus itself is either exaggerated or non-existent, or that the vaccine has some ability to turn the populace into obedient serfs. Talk about a self-inflicted wound. What are we to make of all this vaccine, for want of a better term, Michigas? For me, it's fairly simple. At my age, the vaccine trumps the danger from a blood clot. Now, what's of concern in the USA is the potential cratering of Johnson & Johnson vaccine deliveries. This has created the absurd situation of unused vaccines in some states and shortages of vaccines in still others. There are also reports 
of some Johnson & Johnson vaccine recipients having severe side effects. It's no wonder that people on both sides of the pond have questions, questions that aren't necessarily answered by the scientific and medical communities. And therein lies the rub, because if they can't answer these questions, if they cannot put together a coherent, cohesive narrative about this stuff, it encourages and enables people whose narrative is it's all a bunch of crap and that I shouldn't bother taking the vaccine, I shouldn't bother with COVID or even some of the regulations that are still in place because COVID, according to some of these outliers, doesn't even exist. Now, this is especially true of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, which was troubled from the start, going back to last November. Between the politics and the faulty rollout, their reputation has taken a very, very serious hint. And then there are the variants. There is the Kent variant, which originated in Great Britain. There's a South African variant, which of course started in South Africa. There's a Brazilian variant, which started in Brazil. And again, the public is totally confused about the dangers posed by these new variants. At first, people said, well, yeah, it's a new variant, but the vaccine will take care of it. And even though it spreads very quickly, uh, the risk of mortality is not as bad with some of them. Then that advice started to change ever so little. And people started saying, well, you know, there is uh, among some age groups, an increased risk of mortality, that would be death from some of these new variants. And in the United States, apparently most of the new cases, or at least half of the new cases of coronavirus are coming from the British variant. Now, how do you deal with that? Do you lock your borders down and say that nobody can come into or go out of the country? Or are there situations which apparently have happened in the UK where people have gotten the Brazilian variant without ever having been to Brazil? How do you rationalize that? How do you make that work? And I think in both cases, in the case of the vaccines and in the case of the variants, the medical community, not the political community, the medical community, the scientific community needs to get together butt heads and come up with a coherent, cohesive narrative for people who are on the fence about whether or not to receive the vaccines or on the fence about whether or not they are at any risk whatsoever from these particular variants. Again, the reputations of some of these vaccine manufacturers have taken a hit over this. And speaking of taking serious hits, what are we to make, and this is a different subject now, but I'm talking about serious hits in general. What are we to make of Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Kahn Cullors buying a $1.4 million house in Patanga, uh, Topanga Canyon, California? To make matters worse, the town is between 1.4 and 1.8% black, depending on the media you read. This has created a feeding frenzy among conservatives, both black and white, who accuse colors of blatant hypocrisy. They may have a point, but what fascinates me is that none of the stories about this buy have a single quote from her. 
And I went through a good part of the day searching different media that had covered this buy, this real estate purchase, to find out whether she had said a mumbling word about it. Turned out, no, she actually had not. That's always suspect. Always. I don't care who it is, liberal media, conservative media, it doesn't matter. You report a story, you at least try. And in a couple of cases, they did try to get something from her and didn't, you know, came up empty. But you at least try to get the other side of the equation. They did it with Donald Trump. They can do it with this woman as well. What's just as bad, however, is the questions it raises about Black Lives Matter's finances. This purchase has served to expose fault lines within the organization, specifically between local chapters and the national leadership. It doesn't fall neatly along those lines, but that appears to be where it's at. Add to that the fact that two of the original three founders have severed ties with the organization and Colors Purchase takes on a very new dynamic. It's a classic case of bad optics and it's one that cries out for some comment from Patrice Kahn's Colors. I'm going to assume that will come at some point. If not, she may have destroyed or helped to destroy the organization that she in fact runs. When we come back, vaccine passports, another front in the COVID culture war. Stay with us. This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. I'd like to know what you think. Leave a comment on my Facebook page, or you can email me at mark at markreillymedia.com. The latest flashpoint in the effort to crush COVID-19 comes in the form of vaccine passports. Some countries and politicians see the document as a quick way of reopening their economies. This is especially true of economies that rely on tourism, both domestic and international. And of course, segments of those economies that depend on tourism uh, and, and other areas where without some proof that you have a vaccine, people will feel that they're at risk or they won't actually participate fully in the economy because they're afraid of the risk. Now, opponents have problems with privacy issues and the creation of a two-tier society one for the vaccinated and the other shut out of numerous activities because they either haven't gotten the vaccination or they can't prove they had the vaccination. And it's not just in the U.S. where people are wrestling with this question. Countries throughout Europe, businesses like airlines, cruise ship companies, anyone with skin in the game is weighing in. President Joe Biden in the U.S. says for now, the federal government has no plans to impose a vaccine passport. That means it's up to the states. And that has been a mixed bag. Some states say entities that receive state funding cannot require people to show proof they've been vaccinated. That would be in Texas. 
In New York, on the other hand, Governor Andrew Cuomo has rolled out a pass that allows folks to show they've had the vaccination via smartphone or printout. This, of course, holds open the possibility of mass confusion. Does someone need to show a vaccine passport in order to fly within the U.S.? What states will require them and what states will disallow them? Passports, these vaccine passports, that is, are becoming as weaponized as the vaccine itself. We ought to start with a truth or two. And this I take quite personally. When it comes to privacy, we don't have any. Let's get real here. We are in a situation around the world, in fact, but certainly in the, quote, developed world, where CCTV can follow your every move. They can follow your car on the road. They can follow where you went, who you saw. All of these things, which would ordinarily come in the, uh, within the purview of your personal privacy, technically no longer exist. We have to take the government's word, and this is ironic, we have to take the government's word that they will be used, for example, to catch criminals and not to track ordinary human beings or law-abiding human beings. I don't know whether that's true or not, but the fact of the matter is, between CCTV, algorithms that turn browsing on the internet into nonstop sales pitches, in short, that horse left the barn a long time ago. We do not have what we perhaps among baby boomers have been raised to believe is privacy, personal, group, whatever. We just don't. On the other hand, we have to start asking ourselves the questions of freedom and a system of haves and have-nots. Is it certainly worth examining? Yes, it is. If a person chooses not to have the vaccine, what areas of a normal person's life should be prohibited? Is international travel one? Is going to, for example, a pub? Is that something? Or a bar or a restaurant? Are those things where individual landlords or individual shop owners are able to dictate whether or not you have to show proof of a vaccine? What are the remedies? And and this is the flip side, because there always is, in fact, a flip side. All right. What are the remedies available to someone who is infected with COVID by someone exercising their freedom? See, because it's not just privacy. It's also many people have framed this in the context of freedom. I should be free to make the choice not to wear a mask. I should be free to do this. I should be free to do that. And the fact of the matter is, the sad fact of the matter is that in some cases, people's individual freedoms may trample on other people's freedoms. So that if you say, I'm free not to wear a mask, and then you infect somebody, you have then trampled on their freedom to be safe within a public space. So the other question, of course, and I alluded to this earlier, who decides these passport rules? Is it politicians? who, by the way, not that many people trust? Is it individual shop owners? Is it pub landlords in the UK? It is a complicated question without 
an easy solution. My natural inclination is to opt for freedom, such as it is. But you have to ask yourself again, what exactly is freedom? Confusing rules from state to state is not the best route to any kind of freedom. There should be a uniform policy across all the states. I mean, we have 50 of them. You can't get 50 governors in a room to agree on something. Maybe not. <laughs> that, that's politicians for you. It should be something that assures the maximum amount of safety for the largest number of people. Right now, I don't think vaccine passports are the answer. A better solution I'll leave to people whose job it is to set policy for all of us. When we come back, Major League Baseball moves its all-star game out of Atlanta over Georgia's voter suppression law. We'll talk to former major leaguer turned educator and ESPN analyst Doug Glanville about the decision, what led up to it, and its long-term ramifications. This is The Intersection, back in a moment. Hi, this is Doug Glanville, and you're listening to Mark Riley on The Intersection. intersection. Major League Baseball sent shockwaves through both the sport and political worlds when it decided to abandon Atlanta for this year's All-Star Game. The reason? Georgia's voter suppression law signed by that state's governor, Brian Kemp. But what were the sequence of events that led to the decision? And why is it that some people who have been fighting against voter suppression opposed the moving of the All-Star Game. Here to discuss that and much more is former major leaguer, educator, and ESPN baseball analyst, Doug Glanville. All right, first of all, Doug Glanville, thank you so much for doing this and joining me on The Intersection. I much appreciate it. Yeah, cousin Mark, man, I appreciate it. Full disclosure, we, we go way, way back as way family. Way back, <laughs> absolutely. But, uh, always been a great admirer of your your incredible insights and work over the years so i'm glad to see you back behind the microphone so good <laughs> much appreciated here. much appreciated let me start out by asking you I, I think that the decision major league baseball made to move the all-star game out of atlanta because of the voter suppression laws that were voter suppression law that was passed in georgia sent shockwaves both through the political world and the sports world tell us a bit about the genesis of the effort to make that change well, certainly the genesis has been long time coming. Uh, there was a lot of reflection, particularly in the United States, over the killing of George Floyd. I know that was a pivot point for a lot of corporations, a lot of enterprises, as well as, of course, the consciousness of communities of color and the engagement around larger society. It's, it's, uh, it, I felt like that moment crystallized certain things because of the undeniability of it. And the fact that you know, you're talking in the public sphere, public domain, you knew that this had changed some, some uh, responses that typically would have been handled or, or sort of put out there, so to speak, by corporations or leagues like Major League Baseball. You know, Major League Baseball's history 
you know, when you think about Jackie Robinson breaking into the league, <clears throat> excuse me, in 1947, you know, this is a league that pioneered integration for institutions, major institutions in the United States. But from that moment forward, through Robinson's legacy, they, they kind of stalled out in being leaders in that regard. They, they started to go into more of a reactionary relationship. And maybe it's partly the changing demographics of other sports as they became less the number one sport, but they started to sort of be more of a follower in that regard. So the surprise that you mentioned, the surprise is related to a league that had been seen now as a sort of a passenger, right? More than a driver of any of these type of discussions. Sure. And this moment with the All-Star game really showed a lead position that they were willing to take. Uh, you know, they, they knew the writing was on the wall a little bit because they were going to Atlanta, uh, a controversial voting state because it turned blue in the election and people were saying, how did that happen? And there was concerns uh, for the Republican Party who expected to win the state, quite frankly, that they said, all right, we, now we have to look at, you know, how did we lose? And, and of course, in the politics of America says, all right, well, let's look at what happened. Let's figure out how to shift it just slightly this way so that we win. And they made very aggressive moves to try to position themselves more in doing elections. And so because now the All-Star Games going there, now you have the legacy of Hank Aaron, who this incredible, one of the best players of all time, came sort of the next generation beyond Jackie Robinson. And he went through all the racism and horror of his uh, breaking a record by Babe Ruth that was longstanding. Uh, in, in, you know, and also a symbol of, in some ways, of this like conflict between white and black, right? Hank Aaron sure. comes along and <laughs> knocks him out of the box. So he never stopped working on advocating for things like voting rights. So Major League Baseball was in a very impossible position to try to go down there, honor Hank Aaron in a state that had taken steps that Hank Aaron worked so hard and many others against limiting the access to the ballot. Doug, how instrumental were the players, the contemporary players in getting the league to take this stand? The league really led, I recently I have a show called Classes in Session on Marquee Sports, which is the, the effectively Chicago Cubs network. Mm -hmm. And we had Jason Hayward, who's a current player, and Curtis Granderson, who's a former player. And both of them expressed that there really wasn't this, okay, we're gonna talk to players and take a vote. They did communicate and they listened, but the real lead and push was out of the commissioner's office, it appears. They, and Rob Manford, who's the commissioner, said, look, I know it's gonna be hard to get unanimous consent here. We have a lot of political ideologies here and leadership probably skewing conservative, which is the leadership of Georgia. Mm -hmm. And he didn't really sit back and say, let's just get a unanimous vote. I, he's like, this is what we need to do. So he really did take the lead. And I think what's starting to happen in baseball is a recognition that the NBA has Adam Silver as their commissioner who really has from jump gone out and said, I'm going to take this on head on. He kind of decided that the leadership out of the commissioner's office was going to always be in this lead chair, re you know, recognizing that you have a huge black constituency in, in the sure. NBA. So baseball, not having that same level of diversity from a, from a black white standpoint was a lot more conservative in their approach and turns out politically for the most part, also in their, in their ownership. So it was a, big step by the commissioner say we're going to do this out of time to be messing around we need to make a decision quickly and and really make sure that we're on the as he said the right side of history so 
so yes. So I think there's a lot of elements to your point that this was un- unexpected mm-hmm. and, and definitely not the positioning that baseball had taken in recent times and a, an attempt to really recapture and sort of support the, the commitments that they started to make, especially after George Floyd, they started to really say, we got to step back. And so this was a step that was consistent with that. Doug, I wonder the extent to which Major League Baseball anticipated the tremendous backlash to this decision. I mean, you have, and it's not just Republicans in Georgia, there were some Democrats who were actually you know, working on ending voter suppression, who advised Major League Baseball not to leave Atlanta, not to leave the state of Georgia. Stacey Abrams, very prominent worker against voter suppression, asked not to have boycotts, not to have uh, Major League Baseball leave. Yet they did it anyway. Why do you think that was? Well, this was an inelegant solution in a sense, because when you have two issues, it's twofold. So on one level, there's a national consciousness that you're trying to, to engage on. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, voting and access, which is a longstanding history of suppression for the Black community forever. Mm-hmm. You know, just it, it's built really? on it. And I mean, you go back to 1898, you know, taking up my history lesson, right? Wilmington, North Carolina, you know, you have registered voters, 125,000 Black registered voters in the state of North Carolina. After they burned everybody down to, to kind of install this white supremacy group that ex- rejected an election that was democratically elected and yeah. Black and white participants in what the, the fusionist group who ran this ticket was actually harmonious to a certain degree. The voting went from 125,000 to 6,000 in in a matter of six years. And this is BBC.com, by the way. No, no, it's amazing because I have, my grandparents lived in Wilmington and ran during the riots from Wilmington to Hartford, Connecticut, which is where a big chunk of my, so I know from where you speak about Wilmington for sure. Yes. Right. So you look at that, you know, that kind of impact of what voting has represented in America and yes, so you're trying to take a national position as a national enterprise, but you know that there's certain consequences locally, right? I mean, Georgia, you know, whether it's the workers, the businesses that are depending on the all-star game, you, you certainly may hurt people that you're trying to help uh, in the terms of voting. But then you look at, well, you could have this victory for a certain period of time, four days, five days, six days, but now you're looking at this bigger picture of your inability to vote who's even in office, you know? So, <laughs> yeah. I mean- you know, it's like they, they were going to be in a tough position regardless. And I think they took the position that had a national implication. And so Stacey Abrams said, look, I respect, I understand the spirit. I totally get it. I support this. But I also have to point out that this is going to hurt some of the people you're seeking to help. So it was a long game, bigger picture game versus a short game. And to some degree, that is a different playbook that yeah. typically a lot of the leagues say, oh, let's let's get the victory here. And make the play or issue the little 45 word statement on Twitter and say, we've done our part, right? So um, so I, I'm supporting what they're trying to accomplish on a big scale, but they are politically in a rock and a hard place in a lot of ways. Yeah. And there's always gonna be question about their sincerity. And, and that's just comes with the territory, like a Coca-Cola, right? They're, they, they waited and then just waiting, they got, you know, sort of buried on one side and then they kind of made a move late and then they were called woke and, you know, so, I mean, it, it's a tough political climate regardless. So yes. you might as well do something that has the biggest impact. <laughs> yes, damned if you do and damned if you don't. 
Uh, were you surprised that President Joe Biden, uh, I, I guess maybe conditionally supported the move of Major League Baseball? Not so much. He, he's kind of taken more of a front lead. And in some ways, what is sometimes worrisome is like, okay, you, you've got to jump out there and will you have to you know, backtrack? And that's always a nightmare. But he has been pretty aggressively saying, hey, you know, whether it was, you know, what happened with the the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. And he came out fairly quickly saying, we know this would have gone differently if it was black and brown people who were protesting. I mean, I thought that was really like forward on his part, because oh, yeah. politically, you usually, oh, well, let me wait and get the evidence. And da, 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 da. He just sort of understood to how to underscore the cultural reality that may not always need dots, dotted I's and cross T's, but it's 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 just part of culturally how we know things have, have operated for a long time as people of color. So I do appreciate uh, you know his efforts to try to, to shed light on that and, and be sensitive to that because that's the feeling a lot of people had right, you know, right away <laughs> in many of these cases. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, base, baseball is definitely taking a you know, different stance here. Now, you work at ESPN and without you know, betraying any confidences, I'm curious whether or not your colleagues at the network discuss this sort of thing during the course of a, a regular work day? Do they, do they go back and forth about it? Is there any debate? Are they even interested? You know, it's interesting because I have not really had a lot of engagement around, around the all-star game move. I think there's a, almost like a, in the sports world, it's a little bit like looking around quietly, like what's going to happen, you know, <laughs> like there's, <laughs> there's sort of like, yeah, there's a little shock the residue still. Mm -hmm. But I, when I think of ESPN, I think back to George Floyd. You know, here I always have written on the intersection of sport and society. I've always lobbied to do more of it at ESPN and many other places I've been. I teach a course on it. And, you know, I was kind of pleasantly surprised that ESPN reached out to me to write an essay about George Floyd for Outside the Lines. Sure. And that was what was different about that than, say, framing it in something a long form like 30 for 30 or E60, where you kind of mm -hmm. have all this contextualization they actually came and said, we're going to kind of be real-time response. We're going to kind of get after it fairly quick timeline. And so I was able to write this piece that they ran and they knew right away, you know, people were going to take heat. It went all the way up the chain yeah. of Disney because people were like, all right, wait, let's make sure every word is right. But they, they stayed behind it. So that to me was another shift that I noticed just in the media coverage that it was no longer acceptable to just not ask these questions, not engage on certain things, because not if, even if you're not as a company taking a position in certain ways, that your constituents, your fans, the athletes themselves, the sports have no choice. They're engaged. They have to be. Mm -hmm. And athletes, you know, we know since the dawn of time, Black athletes in particular, they knew that they had to be very versatile in how they engage these subjects, because often they were the figureheads and the cornerstone of change in their communities. You know, if Jackie Robinson didn't speak, if, you know, many of these incredible athletes, Wilma Rudolph, you know, you can go down the list. Yeah, yeah. If they didn't engage on certain topics, the conversation wasn't brought up. We weren't all in these sort of forums to be able to do that other than maybe in the clergy, you know, it was really difficult. So that, you know, I, I believe that as sports, the stick to sports and shut up and dribble or whatever, <laughs> yeah. that is so antithetical to how, the black community has been able to progress or at least challenge certain systems and challenge certain thought process uh, along the way, because those were our platforms. So I think it's now 
there's a realization that look if i i go to you know it's what i experienced right as a base of this realization is yeah it's fine i want to go to be a philadelphia philly and put on my uniform but the reality is i don't get to compartmentalize my life like that you yeah. know, i don't get to be like oh i'm just gonna play baseball and that's it and i'm just a baseball player but then when i go shovel my driveway there's a police officer in my driveway or i don't know you know, if I'm leaving at two o'clock in the morning from the stadium, what's going to happen when I get pulled over? You know, like that's just my reality. That's a lot of people's yeah. reality. And, yeah. and no longer can you just be like, well, you know, just separate that and act like this is not part of your everyday life. You know, it's interesting. I, I'm a little older than you. And one of the biggest impressions of my young life was seeing Jim Brown. Uh, uh, who else was it? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Yeah, the Cleveland uh, Summit. Yeah, the Cleveland Summit yeah. and them standing Probably. with Muhammad Ali, who was my idol as a kid, because he was the first black person who actually got up and affirmatively said, I'm pretty, I'm great. Uh, when I was coming up, you didn't do that as a black person. And to see him do it and then to decide that he wasn't going in the service and have this group of stellar black athletes back him up was extraordinary for me. It made an extraordinary impression. But you mentioned just now your experience, your personal experience um, in what was it, Hartford? Uh, Hartford when you Center. were, yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, this was uh, definitely a turning point for me, but um, I lived at the time in Hartford, Connecticut, and we lived on the western border of a town, West Hartford. So for those of you not from like the provincial Northeast, you know, every, <laughs> every town has, a, you know, its own police own, you know, there, there's just not much regionalization. Mm -hmm. And New England, of course, you know, founding colonies, they're really serious about this. So I knew this growing up in New Jersey, but in Connecticut, it was the same flavor. So I'm living in the capital city of Hartford. I'm a block away from this border and it's real. It's a real border. You know? Yeah, it's a hard so, border. Yeah, it's like, okay, Hartford is black and brown, a lot of poverty. It has this sort of white power center government in, in the west end of the state of the capital. And then you have West Hartford, which is sort of the bedroom suburban community that's kind of urban suburban, but that has a lot more wealth and a lot, you know, less diversity yeah. and so on, right? So that sort of sums it up. And so we live on this border and we're in this, this community that has, you know, a lot of the power brokers but not, you know, the diversity is only in the sort of rental part of the, the, the area, right? You know, that's just <laughs> America, right? So, yeah. so uh, long story short, we, um, I'm shoveling one day in the middle of the day, three o'clock, and it's been four snow days in a row from school. And I see an officer from another, from the, the town next door, West Hartford, pull up across the street in his cruiser. So I'm pretty good with cars. And I notice like, wait, that's weird. Why is there a police officer from another town, like patrolling or whatever? So I just wait and I'm shoveling. And then I look up and it guys comes out of his cruiser, crosses the street. And I'm like kind of alarmed, but I'm kind of looking like, what, what's this guy doing? And he says, so you're trying to make some extra bucks shoveling people's driveway around here. You know, like laser, like no stone face, young guy, no facial hair, hardly probably in his late 20s, maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously white, me, you know, black homeowner, just like, what, 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 you know? So I... Uh, try to disarm him in con small conversation and he never introduced he never explained and he never apologized he just said happy shoveling after you know five minutes of something and you know this guy's like in my driveway it's like what, what's going on so sure. it was pretty disconcerting and you know because it was it was a moment i felt like it was almost like a robbery in a way you know you have your yeah. homeowner 
you kind of feel like you're settled in and you're doing a homeowner duty that I didn't really want to do. And, <laughs> but I'm out there shoveling. So it, it led to, I think the, the story, what I gained from it is, so I didn't, I didn't let this go. Right. So I engaged the police department in both towns. I, you know, interviewed people. I spent two months in understanding the laws that govern it, all these things. And then my state rep, a couple of doors down, floated a bill out there that ended up passing as a law. So 18 months after it happened, <clears throat> I went through the entire legislative process to see how, you know, laws are, are made. You know, I'm just a bill. I'm just only a bill kind of thing. And <laughs> yeah. So the schoolhouse rock became life. So, but what was fascinating about it was I, I, brought it, I learned to see the value in the process, not the outcome. I started to see how important it was that you had a kind of diverse viewpoints in the room to kind of come up with a solution. A solution, yeah. Because yeah. when they invested in that outcome, they, they, they were more serious about it when they were part of the process. You know, it's like, okay, you know, it's sort of like Major League Baseball, you make this decision, but if you're not like bringing in the Players Alliance and the union and, the, and you just kind of do it, you're, you end up kind of alone on the other side too. Even yeah, if like, yeah. even if people say, oh, I'm going to, okay, fine. We're going to do these things for your edification or whatever, but it becomes very narrow. And because there's no solution that's going to be perfect and solve all the problems, you need the commitment to continue to adapt it to the changing circumstances in the spirit of why it exists in the first place. Sure. And I found that was very useful to have people on the ground with me instead of me just sort of charging forward. So I didn't do like a media tour. I didn't go on CNN and all that. I just on the ground, met with people, went to hearings, got educated, sympathetically understood what police deal with all that. I tried to really get into it and put my ego to the side a little bit. And, um, and I think it paid off because at first started off kind of nasty. And then by the end, I had a nice coalition of people and I ended up serving on the police council for the state. So I work on police training and curriculum and certification and decertification of officers. Uh, so that was a pretty solid outcome. I think it went as well as I could have expected, partly because I played the long game. Well, it's interesting because you took an action that had a long-term consequence. And my final question to you is whether or not you think what Major League Baseball has done will do in a larger sense, what you did, which is to have a long-term consequence to this particular rel relatively controversial action? Well, that's a great question, Mark. And that's the, the real million dollar question around Major League Baseball or just any corporation. Do you have the stomach to really go through what is a protracted process with people laying in the road? This isn't like, oh, go ahead, do this. This is great. <laughs> yeah. Have a got a lot of blowback. Um, there's a lot of like, you know, now they're telling leagues stick to sports right now that, you know, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and we know there's laced with hypocrisy. I mean, through all this, but the, um, the challenge is, do they have that long-term plan? And look, since George Floyd, I've been engaged a lot with major league baseball around, and I've pitched them for years about having a curriculum, talking to players, educating players. I've uh, recently pitched many entities around baseball, including major league baseball on having a chief academic officer. And, and the reason I suggested that is you want to be able to distill this information fairly quickly, have someone like a Harry Edwards or someone, or, you know, I, of course I'd volunteer, but the idea that you can provide an education around this uh, so that players, when they speak, they, they feel informed, they feel like they can have constructive engagement around it. So I don't know what baseball would invest in, but I do think they are much more committed to a longer game. 
-hmm. And by taking this step, you know, you think about the nightmare that might've happened. What if they did have the all-star game in Atlanta and then players like Mookie Betts is like, you know what? I'm not playing. I'm boycotting. Yeah. What, you know, we're kneeling at the, like, I mean, I'm just saying like this, you know, I, I appreciate what Stacey Abrams is saying. I, and, but, you know, understanding if they didn't move it, there's still going to, there's still going to be a lot of real serious protest around this. Yeah. So, I mean, it, you know, so I think they also thought that through a little bit to say, all right, well, what, you know, <laughs> what should we go? <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I hope they're in it for the long haul. I, I do think they're much more serious and more aware there's, there's more effort, but we've seen the performative gestures before. So they, they have to prove it, you know, they have to walk yeah. the walk and it, it's not going to be, nobody's going to make it easy on them from, from, if you want to call it sides, both sides. And uh, you know, they have to be prepared to do that. So I, I appreciate it. I think that was a move that is consistent with what they've been saying. They're trying to change about their yeah. social positioning. Sure. And time will tell. Time will tell. You know, I just thought of one other question because I didn't know this until I, I, I forgot what article I read. Um, after you retired from, from major league baseball, uh, you were up for some managerial positions um, and yet you didn't become a manager. Why not? I did. I did interview with uh, the Tampa Bay Rays in 2014, you know, for a while, even when it was considered shortly after I retired, especially as I started having my family and young kids, it was sort mm -hmm. of like, how am I going to do this? Like I, I was fortunate to have a job I really loved in media and I was teaching a course and I felt like, excuse me, I felt like I was in a position to be able to um, have an impact in a way that I wanted to through the avenues I, that had already existed. Um, I understood Major League Baseball, you know, something I loved and, and played and, you know, imagined it possible, but it just didn't align initially and, and still to my, what I wanted to do with my family, given what I'm already doing. I mean, I have a, yeah. feel like a powerful impact in a way I'd like in, through the media. So, but the details of it is I wrote that article in the shadow of, of the invasion, I'll call it, of the U.S. Capitol. Mm -hmm. And it was another crystallizing moment of this sort of two Americas, you know, that we confront a lot. Mm -hmm. And outside of what we mentioned with President Biden, noting that this would have gone differently if it was Black Lives Matter or a, a Muslim campaign, uh, or, you know, we know that there's a lot more to it than just uh, just the, the U.S. Capitol. There's so much more to this duality that we have in the United States and, and abroad or wherever. So so I, I kind of felt that given the choice, what I then take a job and effectively it's a job to be on the road and gone all the time as my my kids are asking these really probing questions about why are people like invading the capital you know united states capital and why are you know why are there so many double standards they're starting to get to that age as, as like preteen, 12 yeah. years old turning 13 uh and i just felt very committed to not putting myself in a position where i'm gone all the time and i'm leaving it to them to figure it out, you know, all on my wife. And I just, I, you know, and I realized there's a privilege in my saying that because I have these other jobs that I can rely on, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so that, you know, but I, that's because I think getting into that article was about checking boxes. That was sort of the theme, you know, I hear like, and I'll give you a, a short story. The ceiling rule is the rule that governs that major league baseball teams have to interview minority one minority candidate for every baseball job under their purview that that was the requirement that was you know somewhere in the 90s late 90s 99 i think so what happened well 
the reason they put this in was partly because black candidates in particular were always told you need experience, you need experience, you have no experience, you have no experience since 87 and all campaigns, you know, you need experience. So they got the experience and went to the minors and winter ball and all these things. And so soon as they got online, the rules changed right now. Was it directly? Maybe not, but it was sort of like, oh, now we don't care about this kind of experience. We care about this kind of experience. So it became an apprenticeship with handpicked candidates who were special assistants that were laterally moved into the managerial chair. So after getting the experience and all that, the rules changed. And that was really frustrating. So there was a period, and I believe it was, I want to say it was 15 managers that were hired without any previous managerial coaching experience. Mm -hmm. All 15 were white. There wasn't a single one of color in that stretch. So when stuff like that happens, you say, well, wait a minute, are people really intentionally undermining this? And, you know, knowing that the league can only do so much for these teams, these organizations. So I think I was looking at the fact that, oh, who are these new candidates they're hiring with no experience? Well, there a lot of them are, you know, Ivy League pedigrees or check this, check that. You know, former players recently done media work. I'm like, hey, I, I hit all these boxes, uh, but I don't want to check a box of being black and creating diversity when you're just checking the box. But it's actually for me, I'm living in this box. I I live in this box and until you understand what that means like okay I take a job with pick any city in America San Diego Boston Milwaukee and I'm going to look for a house in a certain neighborhood the things that I weigh in figuring that out are diametrically opposite or completely different than a white candidate going into the same job that's just reality and so it's not that simple just being like, hey, we have a black candidate. We, well, are you willing to really invest in understanding what that actually means? Actually means. Absolutely. Actually means. And so that was sort of my point in it in saying, although I appreciate it and you know, I'm in these circles more and more, that is the next thing that baseball has to really understand. It's not color by numbers. It's not that simple. It is an experience. It is a system to benefit certain people that's based on color. And it is a, it's a, there's a legacy behind that where it's reinforced consistently because it's really hard for people to go against their own privilege, no matter what it is. So, so I think that was sort of the, the point I was underscoring about it. And, and I look, I watched Dusty Baker, you know, a, a longstanding black manager in Major League Baseball who, who keeps, it's like a Phoenix yeah. and really popular, but you know, he's, a, you know, what, what the only job he could get is the, the Houston Astros who, you know, 2007 defrauded the game in a sign stealing scandal, one of the worst scandals in baseball history. That's the only job he could get after being out, after winning 98 games, 90 games as yeah. a, a top flight manager. I, you know, if you're a person of color and you watch that, you go, "What's up? What is up with that? Why? Why do black candidates only get these rebuilding jobs or these jobs where you're cleaning up messes? Why can't they just walk into like Yankees or whatever?" So, so I think all that I mentioning there is sort of what made me hesitant about it and i'm still look i'm still in touch with these teams and um but it was it was kind of a family first thing because of the moments we're facing right now we're in the midst of the george floyd trial yeah hey, th- these are moments and i, I if i can i, I want to be there for you to talk to my family about it doug glanville thank you so much man this has been a really enlightening uh interview and i hope we do it again sometime soon 
Mark, brother Mark, it's great to be on and uh, wish you great success and you know, keep me posted. Any way okay. I can support and let's keep in touch. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.